We are wrapping up our prayer week for Cornerstone. We passed out prayer devotionals last week. Hopefully you were able to take advantage of those. Caleb uh, Duvig did that for us, did a great job with the devotionals. Hopefully you prayed for the church this week. And if you didn't, go dig it out and find it and pray for the church again this week. They were great um, helps for the church. But prayer is a tough and difficult thing, isn't it? Uh, we all kind of have a desire to pray. We, we want to pray. We, as believers, know it's a good thing, but it's very tough, confusing, and hard. And when you throw suffering on top of it, and the providence of God, it seems like those things just kind of collide. And how does it all work out? And how do we understand it? And should we keep praying? And what's the point? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning and this weekend to feel the heaviness of the sin of abortion on our country. God, help us to feel the heaviness of the injustice of race that we have been a part of as a country. God, help us not to avoid it or to try to not pretend it exists, but God, I pray that you would help us as believers that we would feel it. And when you would give us a desire to fight against it and give us the hope that we can pray and we can know that you are completely in control and that you are a good God working all things out according to your will. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now as we look at this topic of prayer, pain, and suffering and your providence that you would just uh, open up our hearts, open up our minds, and encourage us. And thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What a bizarre way to die. I don't know if you saw the news on Monday, but I think it was Monday and Tuesday. I, I got into the office, I, I clicked on the news, and a college girl from, was out in San Diego just sightseeing, and she was standing up against the back of a rail getting her picture taken. She stepped too far back, and she fell to her death. Just on a sightseeing trip. And you probably heard about the young couple, the three college students that were in Chicago, I think on Tuesday, maybe even the same day, they were traveling from California out to Pennsylvania. They stopped in Chicago to take pictures of the Chicago River. One of them had his cell phone out. He's taking pictures. He drops his cell phone on the ice. Did you hear the story? He went down to get his cell phone, fell through the ice, died. His girlfriend went down to get him. She fell through and died. That's suffering. For some reason, maybe it's because I was thinking about this topic that I was going to preach on, but for some reason, those stories, of all the stories that I got, really jumped out at me this week. Imagine their families, their college students on, on tourist fun trips, and they got phone calls, your daughter died sightseeing, your son died going after his phone in the Chicago River, and his girlfriend died. I don't know if their families were Christians. I don't know if they prayed for them. I don't know if they asked for God's blessing as they traveled. But that we do, don't we? And many times bad things still happen and we prayed. That's why prayer is hard, if you're honest. Maybe you're super spiritual and you say, I can got this prayer thing covered. But if you're really honest, prayer's hard. It's confusing. Did, did we get it right? Did we say it just the right way? 
It also cuts into our lives as Americans because we're busy. And to really pray, we have to make some disciplined time to take care to do it. So it, we, we, we like prayer, but we also, we know how busy we are. And we're like, whoa, should I pray or should I just do something? Because we think prayer isn't doing something. And it cuts into our lives, and sometimes we feel guilty about it. And it, comp- cont- it complicates, excuse me, complicates our thoughts. Because we do pray for people who are going on trips, that they would have safety. And those people that we prayed for while they were going on trips, they get in accidents and they die. We do pray for people's health, that their health would come back to them. And their health doesn't come back to them and they die. Or there's a tragedy or some accident. We ask, what's the point, God? If you are all sovereign like we know that you're in control, what's the point? Paul Miller says, our natural desire to pray comes from creation. We are made in the image of God. Our inability to pray comes from the fall. Evil has marred that image. And add to that suffering in the mix, and it becomes complicated, it becomes confusing, and it becomes something we need to consider as Christians. So this morning, that's what we're just going to do. I ask the question, what is pain? What is prayer? What's the providence of God? How do all those things work out? And how do we as Christians have any hope? And how do we handle those things? What's pain? I asked the 10-year-old, what's pain this week? He said, anything that hurts. That's pretty good. That's what pain is. Anything uh, that hurts. It could be across all the spectrums of your life. Some of it could be uh, a toothache or it could be terminal cancer and anything in between. All of those things are Pain. But what we need to know as we look at our world, pain is absolutely filled with evil. Suffering is the enemy of God. It's an enemy. It's not above God. But suffering, the suffering you're dealing with, the suffering that you're thinking about, the pain you're going through right now, that is an enemy of God. Emotional, physical, spiritual, whatever it is, those are the enemies of God. It's evil as an intrusion into God's creation. A guy named David Bentley Hart, in an essay written after the 2004 tsunami that killed millions, hundreds of thousands of people, said this. He wrote, Of a child dying an agonizing death from diphtheria, of a young mother ravaged by cancer, of tens of thousands of Asians swallowed in an instant by the sea, of millions murdered in death camps and gulags and forced famines, our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin and the emptiness of death. And so we are permitted to hate these things with a perfect hatred. As for comfort when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. It is a faith that has set us free from optimism and taught us hope instead. Faith, suffering, And evil is an enemy of God. And we don't need to pretend that it's not, but often some Christians do. But yet God calls us to pray for that same suffering and evil. So what's prayer? Someone said prayer is intentionally conveying a message to God. It's communicating. But above all of it, we need to see that prayer is an act of worship. The greatest reason to pray, 
with all the evil and all the suffering in the world, the greatest reason to pray is because it's an act of worship for the believer, because God is worthy to be sought. Above everything else, that's why Christians should pray, because God is worthy to be sought, because if we really get tangled up in the confusion of all the evil, we will easily get frustrated and say, what's the point? Because God, you're supposed to be in control. So what's the providence of God? What is God's control? It is true. It is true that God is sovereignly in control of his universe. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of his will. The big things and the small things. Proverbs 16.23 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. That's an amazing verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So as you watch football this afternoon, and they flip the coin to see who gets the ball first, That's not your mere happenstance. I don't think God cares who wins, but know that that flip was not a surprise to him. He knew who got that. He knows who's going to get it, and he even, it was in control of it. The big things and the small things. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? done. And Proverbs 16, 9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're good with that up until the point when we're suffering. If you're in great struggle right now, or if you've been suffering or you're about to enter a time of suffering, all that stuff is good to know in our head. But when we start to pray, We need to make sure we have a right view of this or our prayers are going to be hampered and hurt. We're going to get confused. We're going to get lost in the mess of evilness. And we're going to wonder, where's God and what's the point and why pray? My desire this morning is just to say, hear what God has to say about his control and keep praying. And why can we keep praying with confidence? I think, I think in the world, there's a number of views on, on prayer. And it amazes me. With, with Facebook and social media all the time, now, when, when something bad will happen, out of that, all these prayers will come up. Pray for me, pray for me, pray for this, prayers to you. It's just so flippant. And we just toss it out there like, uh, hey, goodwill or, or whatever it is. Even people who don't know God will say, Pray. I think there's three views of of prayer. I think there's a a, a secular view of prayer that looks like this. When they they see the world, all they see is is pain. When when a a non-religious, atheistic person, a secular person who's outside of any belief in God, all they see when they look in the world is is pain. And they believe that the world is just material. It it just doesn't matter. It's just chaos for them. Because the world's just material, it's unfair, it's happenstance, you, you hope you're not through. So they just see pain in their minds. Pain, pain, pain everywhere. And under that, sometimes they'll ask for prayer. And, and maybe they mean by that goodwill, think good wishes toward me. But below that, 
They see very small or not at all this idea that God's in control. They don't even believe in God. So a secular view is, hey, the world's filled with pain. Toss some good wishes out there for me. Think positively for me. But there's no way that God is in control. There is no God. That's how most people who don't know God view this thing called prayer. That's how they view the world. It doesn't make sense to them. Because there is no control of this chaotic world we live in. It's just all material. It's just happenstance. But there's two other views. There's the religious view of God. Which I would say is, could be a church-going person. Maybe even you. I would say it's the religious view or the moralistic therapeutic view. Which we see God, you may go to church. This, this person may believe in God. They may think it's important to go to church. But they see God as moralistic. It's about doing good things. If you do enough good things, then less bad things will happen to you. And God's just really a therapist for you. He's a, he's a, it's a moralistic therapeutic deity. You do good things, he'll do good things for you. He'll make you feel good and warm and fuzzy. And so they see prayer is outside of this. They see, they see pain in their life. And they see under that the providence of God. But then they see this thing that God's given us as prayer, as a weapon. So when I don't like things, when things aren't going my way, I'll just pray and, and I'll expect because God told me that if I ask anything in his name, he'll give it to me. So I'll just pray and I can, I can change him. It's like outside of God's providence. There's pain on this side. There's the providence on this side. Then God's given them this prayer thing. And if they use it correctly, and if they use it rightly, They'll be able to change things. And, and if it doesn't change things for them, well, then God's not real. God's not good. He isn't what I thought. It's the wrong view of God. The third view of prayer that I think biblically, which is Godward focused, is that the providence of God is over the top of all of it. God isn't completely in control of your life. He's in completely control of your situation, your pain. He knows every detail about it. And he has even providentially ordained your prayers. So he uses your prayers to deal with pain. That's what I think is the biblical perspective on how we should view prayer and the providence of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Those are really good verses. They're really helpful until your uncle shoots your cousin. They're really helpful until your dad dies of cancer. They're really helpful until your friend's marriage falls apart. Aren't they? We like them when things are sterile and good. But we need more help than that, than just having a little detailed design of how prayer works and how we should view it. Because the reality is we live in a broken world filled with pain and suffering. And yet we have a God who's over it. And how do we understand it? Those verses and those things are, are helpful, but they're not going to move you to prayer. They're not going to motivate you to prayer unless we can see a little bit more. And so God didn't leave us without help on this. He gave us a story. He gave us a person. He gave us somebody who was really enduring pain. 
an innocent sufferer. He gave us the book of Job, which is one of the oldest books of the Bible. And it's 40 chapters long. It's the two, first two chapters of Job are about Job's situation and God saying, hey, this is what happened to this guy. Here's the story. And the middle of it is a long conversation with a bunch of different friends. And at the end is God's response to Job. And this helps us, or at least it helps me, when we think about God's pain, prayer, and the providence of God and how we should see this thing. Because here's the situation with Job. If you take just the Old Testament story of evil and pain, this seems like a very unfair story, and it is. I think that's the point. Because at the beginning, in verse chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Satan, so Satan comes before God. There's no explanation of why Satan is allowed to come before God. God doesn't tell us that in Job. He doesn't go into all the extra details of the things we want to know. He tells us what we need to know. And so there was a time when Satan would come before God, and he comes to God, and verse 8 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God, does Job fear God for no reason? Haven't you just really blessed this guy, given him everything? And he had. Job was wealthy, he was healthy, he had all the money he possibly could want. And on top of that, Job actually was the most righteous person on earth. Job obeyed God in everything. When his children would go and party at their house, just which just shows how wealthy they were, Job would be back there praying for his children that, God, if they sinned in any way, Job was an unbelievably righteous man. He was an innocent person. None of these things should have happened to Job. That's the point. Yet they did happen to Job. And verse 22, after he hears about all the tragedy, his children die. He loses all his, his cattle. He loses all the, his, his stuff. It's all gone in a day. And Job reacts Really nice at first here, and well. Then Job arose in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I don't know how long it's been since you've read the story of Job, but the world knows about Job. The world knows about his suffering. He was an innocent person suffering. Evil came into his life for no reason on his own. Job messes up the religious view and the irreligious view of evil and how we are to deal with it. Because his friends come along and say to him, hey, and there's some good things that his friends do as you read. They, they sat with him for seven days and didn't say a word. That's pretty good, friends. But when they began to speak, they gave him the religious view of things. Job, bad things don't happen to people who are obeying God. That's what his friends said to him. People are obeying God. They get good things. So surely you sinned. Somewhere along the line in your life, Job, you missed something. This would not be happening to you if, if you didn't sin. That's what his friends said to him. That's the religious view. That, hey, if you're religious and moral, good things will happen to you. So God's your genie, so just pray and he'll change it. And hopefully your good will outweigh 
you're bad. Even gospel-believing people hold to that view. That's not correct. And the irreligious view would say, there's just no good reason. See, this proves that there is no God. There's no good reason for all this evil happening to him. And all that is not true. And Job actually does get weighed down by these things. He gets torn. He doesn't curse God in it, but he gets, he gets wore down. In Job 3, verse 23 Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? He, he's, he's tired. He, he, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, in verse 3, let, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. He doesn't curse God, but he's absolutely worn down by this evil. He's worn down by the pain. He's worn down by his suffering. And, he, and he's, he's breaking a little bit, but he, he's crying out. These things. But towards the end, as you go through the book of Job, and you listen to the arguments of his friends, and you listen to Job's argument back to them about, no, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. I I am. It is just. This is unjust. It is evil just happening to me. Then all of a sudden, in Job chapter 38, way towards the back, God shows up. In Job's suffering. Job chapter 38 verses 2 through 7. Are you picturing your life? You lost all your family. You've lost all your money. You've lost all your health. You did nothing wrong. You're crying out to God You're not getting any answers. Is prayer worth it? Is God in control? Why, why, why? Job asked all those questions. He was a real person. He experienced it all. Why, why, why? God, show up. And then he does. And we think, oh, it's going to be good now. And this is what he says. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or where it's base sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut it in the sea with doors when, it's burst, when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall, here shall you proud waves be stayed." God comes and doesn't answer all of Job's questions. He challenges Job. He says, who are you? But he challenges Job in a pretty amazing way because the fact is God actually did come to Job. 
God came to him, which is amazing. And all of Job's struggles and all his suffering and all his pain, God still showed up and he used the name Yahweh to Job. When he says the Lord there and God, he used the word Yahweh, which is God's name of personal, intimate revelation of him. God came not as Job's accuser in his suffering. God came to Job as his friend. Who says, Job, I know you don't understand everything. I I know you don't understand why you did this. And you can't. Because I am God and you are not. So there is an aspect of suffering. That we just have to say, we don't know. And we will never know. I don't know why God allowed a girl traveling to San Diego to fall off a cliff to her death. I don't know. I don't know why you're suffering. I don't know. And part of that answer has to be okay with us. Because that's the answer that God gave to Job. But God doesn't give us that answer angrily or unkindly. He gives it to us as an intimate, personal relationship friend. He's our Yahweh. God's response to Job was, I am your God. I am with you. He doesn't give us all the information. But he also said to Job at the end, when he kind of said, Job, who do you think you are? Can you do this? Can you fix your life? Can you do this? Can you do this? In verse 42, when it's all said and done, and we're going through this pretty quick, when it's all said and done, And all Job's friend had given him wrong information and told him all kinds of wrong things. And Job did not know what God was doing. He did question why. He was stressed out beyond belief. And people say, God God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he does. He always gives me and gives you more than you can handle. He just doesn't give us more than we can handle with his help. So don't believe that. Uh, God's not going to give me more than he can handle, than I can handle. Yes, he is. And he does it quite often. But he doesn't give you more than he can handle because he is a, prov- he is a sovereign God. And this is what he said to Job in verse 42, verses 7 to 9. After all his friends had said their thing, he said to them, And the Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliaphaz, his friend, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job, should underline this, my servant Job shall pray for you. The guy who's suffering the most, the guy who's lost everything, the guy who's been through everything, the guy who struggled with being through everything, the guy who didn't understand God through everything, that's the guy who says, you know what? Go to Job. And I want Job to pray for you. Not you guys. Job was right because all through the trial, all through the struggle, all through the confusion of not knowing what God's doing in his life, wondering why, how to deal with it, totally confused, totally frustrated, burnt out, not wanting to talk to people, feeling like being alone, all through it, he still prayed. He still prayed and God said, Job's right. Some of his prayers were complaints. Some of his prayers were 
arguings. Some of his prayers were pleads. But all through it, Job kept talking to God. Go back and read the book of Job. Through it all, he never cursed God. He never sinned. He complained to God. He poured out his heart to God. He argued with God. He stressed things out to God. He expressed his things to God. That's all prayer. So we pray because God is in control. Because God is good. And we don't know why bad things happen. But we keep praying anyway because God is gracious and God is unbelievably forgiving. Job prayed through it all. John Newton said, If we are not getting much out of going to God in prayer, we will certainly get nothing out of staying away. If you are suffering... If you're going through great difficulty and you're completely confused about what God's doing or why he allowed this to happen or why he took that from you or why you didn't get this, the response is not, I'm not going to pray. It doesn't matter. God will do whatever he wants to do. God's God. I can't change him. I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. Let my life happen. That's not the response of a sufferer because you haven't suffered nearly as much as Job has. And Job prayed through it all. And God said to him at the end, go see Job. Let Job pray for you. Our response to life as Christians and to suffering and to prayer should be, we need, we need to tremble. We need to see that, yes, God, you are God. My ways, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. We need to tremble. It really irritates me, and it shouldn't, but it irritates me when it's instantly, ah, okay, sarah, sarah. That's the way it's going to be. God's God. He can do what he wants. No, God's gracious. He's forgiving. He's kind. He's loving. He's got a masterful plan. He's figuring it all out. It's for your good. He, he tells us that over and over and over and over and over again, but for some reason we say, I don't want to believe that. I'm hurting, so whatever God said before doesn't matter because I'm in pain. That's not true. Job said, I'm, t- I'm hurting, I'm in pain, and whatever God said before, I don't understand, but I'm going to keep crying out to him to answer and to help me. So we need to tremble as Christians, and we need to trust that God is with the brokenhearted. He's with you in your pain. He is near to the brokenhearted even when it doesn't feel like it. So when you're struggling and it doesn't feel like God's with you, doesn't feel like he's answering you, you can't see his face and you can't see his hand, you keep trusting God. And you read the Bible, not devotionally, like you're going to get some happy buzz from it. You read the Bible factually, say, this is what God says, and it pains me to read it. It's hard to read it. This is just killing me to read the Bible, but I'm going to believe what it says. And you dig into Scripture, and you trust what he says is true. We tremble, and we trust, and the light will break through. And then we take God's invitation. Sufferers are great prayers, apparently. Job was through, went through unbelievable suffering, and he believed that God was sovereignly in control, that God was totally in control of every little detail of it. And God never told Job, never told Job, hey, listen, hang on here, buddy. 
because you're going to be the most famous person with suffering in the whole world. He never said that to Job. That would have helped Job out, wouldn't it? Okay, cool. He never said that to Job. He said, you just suffer. But tremble, trust, and take my invitation to know that if you pray, my prayers are part of my plan for you, and I am working through your prayers even. So we pray. We pray this year in 2014 for all kinds of sufferings, all kinds of hurts that we don't understand because we tremble before God, we trust God, and we're just going to believe what he says and take his invitation that he has providentially designed and over even our prayers. And so he invites us to be a part of prayer. We pray because we are, have been invited by God to be a part of what he's trying to do. We need to persevere in prayer because it does matter. It's how God is designed to deal with the hurts and the evils and the pain of the world. And there is hope and there's power in it. And you know why there's hope and power in it? Because Jesus was the greatest Job. Jesus was a better Job. Tim Keller says this, Jesus is the ultimate Job, the only true innocent sufferer. Jesus was willing to live the life of Job to its ultimate conclusion. He was willing to die while considered by friend and foe alike to be a fool, a blasphemer, even a criminal, powerless to save himself. As Job was naked, penniless, and in physical pain, so Jesus was homeless, stripped naked, and tortured on the cross. While Job was relatively innocent, Jesus was absolutely, perfectly innocent. And while Job felt God abandoning him, Jesus actually experienced the real absence of God, as well as the betrayal of his foolish friends and the loss of family. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus saw that if he obeyed God fully, he'd be absolutely abandoned by God and essentially destroyed in hell. No one has ever faced such a situation. Only Jesus truly served God for nothing. Far more than Job, Jesus was assaulted by Satan. But in the greatest reversal of all, Satan only brought about the achievement of God's salvation and grace. Francis Anderson says, This is the final answer to Job and all the Jobs of humanity. As an innocent sufferer, Job is the companion of God. In other words, when you suffer... Without relief, when you feel absolutely alone, you can know that because he bore your sin, he will be with you. You can know you are walking the same path Jesus walked, so you are not alone. And that path is only taking you to him. So we pray as a church. It is not Kesara Surah. God is providentially over control of everything. And we say yes to that. Let his will be done. He is providentially even inviting us through, his, through our prayers to see his kingdom furthered. And Jesus has gone through far more than we could ever imagine. And he did it for rebels like us. And he invites us to pray. Elizabeth Elliot, who was just a Wheaton College girl, walking around Wheaton College campus, So she met Jim Elliott, they got married, went down to the Aka Indian tribe, her husband was slaughtered. 
and his friends. She went back, suffered numerous setbacks as a missionary. Got married again. Her other husband dies. Her life has been filled with suffering and pain, and she walked just a few miles away from us as a college girl, Wheaton, all happy and excited about what God's going to do. And God called her greatly to suffer and suffer and suffer. But she said this, God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. God is God. So we pray as a church, and I encourage you to pray through your pain to a God who is near you. To a God who wants to invite you to pray with him. So we need to lift up prayer more in our church, and we will. And we do it with confidence. Because even though we don't know why everything takes place, we do know that they're the God who does. And we worship him by joining in him and the invitation to pray. Exalted He is exalted On high He is
Yeah.